Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. Officials have closed beaches along Indiana Dune State Park in northern Indiana. The beaches were ordered to be closed due to a foamy discharge from U.S. Steel's facilities in Gary, Indiana. U.S. Steel issued a required report of unauthorized contamination last month. It claimed the discharge was not dangerous or harmful to human health. Last year, U.S. Steel reported spilling the highly carcinogenic chemical hexavalent chromium into Lake Michigan. The Environmental Protection Agency is reconsidering the reasoning behind its rule that limits air pollution from coal and oil-fired power plants. WFYI in Indianapolis Reports revisiting the rule could open the door to deregulating power plants in the state. The EPA is seeking to overturn the mercury and air toxic standard, which primarily impacts coal-fired power plants. President Obama's administration passed the mercury and air toxic standard, but the Trump administration says it's too costly for utility company to comply with the standards. WFYI reports if the rule is challenged in courts, it could change the way the EPA writes regulations. At the center of the rule change is the consideration of so-called side benefits, which look at secondary benefits like those to public health, beyond pollution itself. Utilities have reported, reportedly spent over $18 billion to comply with the mercury and air toxic standard. Indiana is among several states across the country, which is primarily powered by coal-fired power plants. The proposed rule change to the mercury and air toxic standard would be published in the federal government's rule book, the Federal Register. Once the proposal is published to the Federal Register, the public has 60 days to comment on it. The website for the Federal Register is federalregister.gov. The Financial Times reports an increasing number of global food and agricultural companies are investing in plant-based proteins. According to the Financial Times, U.S. meat group Tyson Foods has taken a stake in plant-based meat company Beyond Meat. Leading agricultural trader Cargyle has also invested in a cellular meat startup. And Memphis Meats and Unilever bought Dutch company Vegetarian Butcher. The demand for artificial meat is driven largely by concerns about health and weight loss. Customers are also concerned about greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture and food production. Food and agricultural production accounts for about a quarter of all global emissions, with two-thirds of that coming from the livestock sector, according to data from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. 
In addition to the methane gas livestock produce, transporting animals and growing livestock feed significantly impacts U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Over the past four to five years, the spotlight on agriculture and food industry's impact on the environment has intensified. Bloomberg reports over 127 million acres of the U.S. is used in livestock grazing. A further 77 million acres accounts for domestic food production. The over 200 million acres for domestic food and livestock production would take up about half of the Midwest. Several startup organizations are offering artificial or lab-grown meat as an alternative to livestock production. The financial interest of corporate giants like Unilever in artificial meats indicate investors are eyeing its potential as a globally growing industry. Outgoing Indiana Senator Joe Donnelly criticized the Indiana Department of Environmental Management last month over its handling of contamination sites in Franklin, Indiana. In early December, Donnelly said IDEM knew about the contamination to sites in Franklin as far back as 2013. Higher than average reported instances of cancer in Franklin have caused community concern over possible environmental toxins, particularly in the groundwater. Franklin Power Products Incorporated and Amphenol Corporation conducted an environmental investigation and cleanup at their former facility in 1990 and 1998. The EPA determined that a former owner and operator released volatile organic compounds and other chemicals into the environment, including into sewers, which transported the contamination outside the property boundaries to the neighborhood south of the facility. The EPA's orders required Franklin Power Products and Amphenol to investigate the contamination, including known carcinogens, to determine what was released, where it may have traveled, and to determine the potential health risks and environmental effects of the contamination. A sewer line found to be contaminated was replaced and contaminated soil was removed. The EPA also required the companies to construct and operate cleanup measures. A Superfund site, Webwell Field, is located less than a mile from the Amphenol site. Both sites are in Johnson County. The National Forest Service is proposing a forest management project for the Hoosier National Forest. The Forest Service is proposing to log 4,000 acres of the Hoosier National Forest. That proposal includes over 400 acres of clear-cutting just south of the Charles C. Deem Wilderness Area in Monroe County. The project is called the Houston South Vegetation Management and Restoration Project. The Forest Service reports their goal is to improve forest health, promote oak and hickory ecosystems, and restore wildlife habitats. The project would involve logging and vegetation changes to the Hoosier National Forest, with clear-cutting expected to impact over 400 acres south of Lake Monroe. The current proposal would clear-cut forest in the northwest corner of Jackson County and the northeast corner of Lawrence County. No official decisions have been made on the status of the project. If approved, the Forest Service hopes to reduce the amount of non-native pine trees and to diversify ground vegetation. 
Currently, the Forest Service, a federal organization in charge of natural resources, says Hoosier National Forest is dominated in areas by non-native pine trees, which block out native ground bushes, trees, and shrubs. The Forest Service's hopes that by clearing pine wood-dominated areas, they'll be able to enhance the ecosystems of the Hoosier. The Forest Service has stated it is also considering repairing roads, trails, and eroded areas in and around Hoosier National Forest. Late last month, Hoosier National Forest Supervisor Michael Chavez presented the Forest Service's plans to the Monroe County Commissioners. Chavez told commissioners only a small part of the Hoosier National Forest has been targeted for logging at any given time. Yes, we do harvest timber off national forests. It is part of the mission of the agency and part of what we do in terms of supporting local economies with sustainable wood products. Um, but we don't harvest timber just for the sake of cutting trees. Um, we have ecological objectives that we're trying to achieve, and the timber harvest and prescribed fires are, are the tool by which um, we get that done. Um, so it's a relatively small proportion of the forest in any given year, about 0.15% of the national forest acreage gets harvested for timber. And the primary reasons we do it are, there's really two, twofold. One is there's, there's a very good level of data that is showing us that our forests are in trouble when it comes to the composition. Uh, we are losing oaks across the landscape. Um, people can be fooled a little bit into thinking it's not an issue because you go for a hike and there's lots of, of, of oak in the canopy, plenty of mature trees. It's the next generation that's not coming up. And the reason for that is oaks need disturbance. They need sunlight and they need um, fire in order to compete with maple and beech. Without those disturbance factors, maple and beech will replace them and we're losing oaks. And if we lose them, they're a very important component when it comes to wildlife habitat. Chavez says, said data also shows that wildlife species are decreasing, particularly songbirds. One reason, he said, is a lack of diverse habitat. In southern Indiana, most of our forests, 90%, more than 90%, are older than 20 years, but younger than 100 years. So we're missing two very important pieces in large part, the old forest and the young forest. And most uh, bird species rely on both of those moving forward. So those are our primary objectives when we work timber harvest as a tool and burning as a tool in order to improve that habitat quality and diversify it. Area environmental groups have expressed concern that the timber harvest and controlled burns would negatively impact Lake Monroe's water quality, as well as the state's only national forest. Chavez said the Forest Service uses best management practices. Most of the national forest does not and will not get logged um, going forward, but a small proportion of it does. And whenever we do a timber harvest, I just want to emphasize, too, that this is not just a, a contract let and, and loggers are, are free to do whatever they, they wish within the forest. They're very heavily regulated. We have people on the ground um, consistently watching what they're doing, um, and we put in best management practices to control and mitigate erosion going forward and protect water quality. If approved, the forest management plan would be phased in over 10 years, according to the Forest Service website. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. This segment of In Nature is about the endangered species, the smooth green snake. 
The smooth green snake is a 14 to 26 inch long, small and streamlined, bright grass green snake with a long tapering tail. The belly is white and tinged with pale yellow. It mates in the spring and late summer and lays 3 to 11 cylindrical shaped thin shelled eggs in late July to August. The young hatch in 4 to 23 days. A choice egg-laying site may be shared by many females. You can find the smooth green snake in meadows, grassy marshes, and moist grassy fields along the forest edge. They are active during the day and excellent climbers. Their color provides excellent camouflage as it moves through the grass and low shrubs in search of insects and spiders. They rarely bite when handled, but will smear a captor's hand with a musky anal secretion. It is hunted by various predators, including the red-tailed hawk, bears, raccoons, foxes, housecats, and humans. Humans like to keep them as pets, but they do not survive well in captivity. The smooth green snake population is declining because of pesticides as well as destruction of habitats. Indiana is one of the few states protecting the smooth green snake. You've been listening to In Nature. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Norm Holy speaks with Rex Waters. Waters is a Lake Monroe wildlife specialist. In today's feature report, Waters and Holy speak about wild eagle populations near Lake Monroe and across Indiana. Bald eagle was largely gone from Indiana in the 1890s, and I guess that was through hunting and loss of habitat. Is that correct? Uh, loss of habitat was the primary condition back at that time, and then, of course, uh, early pioneer periods, uh, everything that would eat one of their domestic animals was considered to be a threat, so quite often uh, the early pioneers looked upon any predator as a problem. So the bear, the wolf, the mountain lion, and the eagle, and other animals were uh, removed from the wild environment in order to preserve their domestic animals. Uh, in Indiana, the last successful eagle nest was in 1897. With the draining of many of our native wetlands, since the eagle was primarily a fish-eating bird, that was a major impact on uh, the population here. Much later, did the DT issue influence Indiana eagles Right, Right during the period of time when we began to develop insecticides, especially uh, DDT and, and some of the others that were uh, widely used to control uh, mosquitoes and other pests, those had a very bad effect on all the top predators, and eagles particularly uh, being at the top of their food chain in that uh, the chemicals would run into the water the smaller fish would get a small concentration, the larger fish would eat them, and the larger fish were eaten by the eagles. And uh, as the concentration got larger in those birds, their success in nesting was dramatically impacted, and also the success in nesting of songbirds and many other bird species. Now, there, there weren't any nest sites in Indiana until the 1980s, is that correct? Actually, the 1990s. Um, 1897 was our last wild nest. Uh, we had eagles that were migrating through the area and would reside in the area but not nest in the area. Uh, and this is the whole state of Indiana. 
so we would see them here during the spring and fall migrations. We'd occasionally get immature birds or unmated adults that would be around the state, but we had no active nesting until after the reintroduction period. We began our bald eagle reintroduction with the uh, passage of a bill that uh, allowed the non-game fund to be uh, a checkoff and a donation site for Indiana State taxpayers and people that wanted to donate to it. And it was a designated fund, a fund that could only be spent for non-game reintroductions and for other non-game activity. Uh, the funding uh, was significant enough in 84 that we began looking at our first project. Uh, in 85, we began that first project, which was the reintroduction of bald eagles. Now, were you involved in that original program? We were lucky enough to be on the site that they decided to do the reintroduction at. Uh, in the fall of 84, uh, leading into 85, our non-game biologist, Chris Iverson, was doing a survey of the state and looking for the best place to begin that reintroduction effort. Every January for many years, as part of a national count, we would do a bald eagle census. Uh, here in Indiana, uh, Monroe Lake had had some of the higher counts of those periods of times. And when uh, Chris came to look at our property, we had three or four eagles on the property, which was the highest count in the state on that day. So he decided that uh, this would be the good place to try and reintroduce them since they were already using the area. How did you uh, reintroduce the eagle to the Monroe area? Well, we identified location that would be the best place to create what we call a hacking tower. The hacking tower is a term that we've borrowed from the falconers. Basically what that means is that uh, we have a platform, a structure that's designed to allow birds that have been in captivity to be reintroduced to the wild. Uh, in order to do that so we'd have the highest success rate with the birds staying in the area, we would get young birds from a wild nest, birds that had been raised uh, by their parents. And these came from Wisconsin initially, and their population of wild eagles was high enough that we would look for nests that had three chicks. And uh, with three young eaglets in a nest, that's a challenge for the parents to sometimes provide enough food for them. And so we would identify those three bird nests and then go into those and either take the largest bird or the smallest bird so that the other two left behind would be close to the same size and age and have the best chance of survival. Uh, eagles lay their eggs progressively. So they'll lay an egg today and a little later they'll lay another egg and a little bit later they'll lay another egg. So the oldest eaglet would be the largest eaglet in most cases, and the youngest eaglet would have the least chance if there was a, a challenge for food. So by either taking the largest or the smallest, we would be able to give the other two a better chance of survival. When you brought them to Indiana, did you intentionally try to avoid human interaction, or did you... No, we tried to keep the interaction with them as minimal as possible. Uh, from the eaglet's standpoint, they were exposed to people when a person climbed into the nest and removed them from the nest. Then they were transported immediately to Indiana, to Monroe, and they were exposed to people when we were taking them out of their captive cage and putting them into the hacking tower. We had one-way glass on the back side of it. Uh, they would hear noise behind the nest. Uh, all of a sudden, fish, their favorite thing to eat, would fall into the nest site from uh, behind them, and uh, they never saw people feed them. We put three birds to a, a 
uh, nest area, so we could raise 12 birds at one time, and that would give us the opportunity to release them as they became ready for release at roughly 11 to 12 weeks of age. We would go in at night while they were calm, and uh, they would be banded when we first got them with a federal and a state band. Then on the night before their release, we would wing tag them with an orange, uh, like a, a coat sleeve that would go over their wing with a black letter that would uh, distinguish which bird they were, and that would be on both wings. And then we'd also set them uh, on a primary tail feather with a radio transmitter and a unique frequency so that once they left the site, we could track them uh, with that radio frequency. Uh, at that point, then, we would put them back into the cage and then early the next morning open the cage door before daylight so that they could then fly out whenever they were ready. Uh, we would then support them by providing food on feeding structures and platforms around the hack tower and in the nest in case they wanted to come back into it. Uh, it was very rare that they would go back into the cage, but the whole point of the operation was to let them learn to fly here in Indiana. And where they first learned to fly is where they imprint on as their home base. Uh, five years later, when they become sexually mature and ready to re-nest, uh, those eaglets tend to come back between 50 and 100 miles of where they first learned to fly. So it was our hope that our birds would uh, then return to Indiana to be nesting eagles in Indiana. Roughly how many uh, eagles are there now in Indiana? Well, our first active nest that was successful was in 1991. Right now we're pushing over 300 nest sites. They're scattered throughout the state of Indiana. It sounds like the situation is very good at the moment, and thank you very much for a uh, very enlightening talk. You're welcome, and we have a, a non-game fund that's still active, and uh, donations are readily needed. How does one make a donation to that? On your state tax form in April, there's a place where you can make a direct donation of refunds that you get back into that fund, or you can make a direct donation to the non-game fund at any of our properties or mailing it into the Division of Fish and Wildlife. Today I've been speaking with Rex Waters. He's the Reservoir Wildlife Specialist for Monroe Reservoir and a specialist on eagle population and reintroduction. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. Now it's time for The Secret Life of Fungi, a new segment on EcoReport looking at the microbial world. This is The Secret Life of Fungi, Mycelium Running. The largest known organism on Earth is a honey mushroom that stretches 2,385 acres in an eastern Oregon forest. But wait, mushrooms aren't that big. At least, not the part we eat or harvest for medicine. However, mushroom fruit springs from a root-like structure called the mycelium, and the mycelium touches every aspect of its ecosystem. 
I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower, and I'll describe more about how mycelium threads serve as the underground network connecting organisms throughout an ecosystem in this segment of The Secret Life of Fungi. Fungi, large and small, are all around us, in the soil and air, in our bodies. Fungi is the largest living organism and the oldest form of multicellular life on our planet. And yet, much of the fungi kingdom is hidden from human view. Let's take a dive underground and examine the mycelium network that runs throughout healthy soil, providing essential communication services for the ecosystem. Mycelium looks like a cobweb, a white tangle of filaments called hypha. The hypha grow in a branching, radiating pattern that looks like the way brain neurons interconnect. In fact, the way a mycelium network functions in its ecosystem is quite intelligent. Mycorrhizal fungi, the type of fungi that cohabitates with plant and tree roots, live in a close symbiotic state with its vascular neighbors. Mycorrhizae absorb the nutrients it needs from its companion species. In exchange, it facilitates a thriving ecosystem by sharing water and other resources among a diverse array of plants, including most crops, grasses, flowers, and many trees. You could call mycelium the secret connectivity of resilient soil. In addition to its role in balancing a thriving ecosystem, mushrooms, again through the actions of the mycelium network, can remediate toxic insults to an environment. Mycoremediation can clean up fossil fuel spills, E. coli contamination, heavy metal and radiation poisoning. It can even break down plastic, the ubiquitous scourge of the Anthropocene age. Sometimes the fungi kingdom gets a bad rap. True, fungal infections are nasty between the toes, but mycologists are studying how mycelium networks its living neighbors, tree to tree, to grassland, to garden, and facilitates distribution of resources. Mycelium serve as the foundation of living soil. Ecologists are learning more and more how fungi can save the world. To learn more about mycoremediation, Read Mycelium Running by mycologist Paul Stamets or see his YouTube video. Also, you can look forward to more segments of The Secret Life of Fungi. This week in our listening area, McCormick's Creek State Park will host a Christmas bird count on Saturday, January 5th, beginning at 7.30 a.m. Join volunteer birders to identify and count birds in the park. Be sure to bundle up. Meet at the Canyon Inn. An eagle watch will take place at Patoka Lake on Saturday, January 5th from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. See live eagles in the wild during driving tours around the lake and up close on a handler's glove. Advanced registration is required. Call the Nature Center at 812-685-2447 to register. Hike to the Yellowwoods at Brown County State Park on Saturday, January 12th from 11 a.m. to 12 noon. Take a journey into Ogle Hollow Nature Preserve and see the work being done to help the Yellowwood trees. This is a moderate hike including stairs. Dress for the weather. There will be a winter freeze tree 
ID hike at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Sunday, January 13th from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Learn how differences in bark, buds, growth habits, and even scent helps identify trees during winter when there are no leaves. Dress for the weather. Meet at the Boathouse and register by January 4th at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Wes Martin. This week's In Nature was written by myself, Juliana Daly. Kaylin Huffman-Brower produced The Secret Life of Fungi. Wes Martin edited the script. Norm Holy produced our feature. Sarah Vaughn engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Jan Walker is our producer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to The Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.